Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Before we get started, here's a quick note from our sponsor. As we covered in our recent blog series on the five vital roles, smart buildings require engineers, and engineering that allows OT and IT systems to seamlessly and securely integrate with each other and integrate with common platforms. Creating a successful building intelligence strategy entails translating the owner's goals to outcomes, use cases, intelligent building technologies, and enhanced MEP systems. To learn about what JBMB is calling MEP 3.0 and the value of building intelligence design, check out our friends at JBMB and specifically their podcast conversation with Wired Score at the link in the show notes. This episode is a conversation with Comley Wilson, CMO at Enertiv. I really enjoyed this one because I believe in a lot of what Kam Lee was saying about workflows being the key to decarbonizing buildings. And not just decarbonization, really implementing any new technology or changing the way things are done in any way requires you to start with the way people work currently and meet them where they're at. To that end, we spent most of the episode unpacking Kam Lee's hot take that 2022 was all about tenant experience and 2023 is going to be all about operator experience. So stay tuned for exactly what that means. Before we dive in, I want to make sure everyone is aware of two initiatives we have going on at Nexus Labs. The first is our jobs board. I'll keep that short and sweet. You can now pay a monthly fee that allows you to put up to three job postings at one time into our newsletter that goes out to currently 6,000 doers in the smart buildings industry. You can find that by going to our website and clicking on jobs. Second, we just announced our new partner program. We're looking for only the top smart building technology vendors and service providers. I'm talking three to five in each category-ish to join our new program where we're going to work together to tell the stories that matter on each category. So reach out to us if you're interested in being in our inner circle and helping us plan out our editorial calendar for the year. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus podcast with Comley Wilson. Hello, Comley. Welcome to the Nexus podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Can we start with your background? Can you take us through kind of educational background, professional background? What, what, what got you here? Sure. And thanks for having me. It's really, it's really great to be here. So I went to uh, American University. I studied political science. I, I got into uh, energy and environmental policy and thought I wanted to work in uh, think tanks and nonprofits. And my first job out of school was was at a, a startup. And I fell in love with the entrepreneurial side of things. I, I, uh, I had never thought that would be my path. But, um, you know, that company got acquired, which was great to see, got to work at the corporate version of that for, for a little while, hmm. tried to launch my own little app. It was like the idea was like the mint personal finance app, but but for your your sustainability, which I think exists now. Uh, there's a couple of those. And then landed at Enertiv. And so I've been here for the last uh, five and a half years. It's been awesome to see the company grow from uh, where it was to where it is and, and, and to see the market grow. And, and uh, yeah, I, I'm the marketing director at, at Enertiv. And I, I'm fortunate enough to get to touch the business development side, the product development side, and everything in between. So uh, it, it's just 
it's been cool to learn about this industry and become become one of the one of the voices in it. Yeah, totally. You you strike me as someone that's more technical than your average CMO, right? There are a lot of people in our industry that are in marketing. No offense to any of those people, yeah. but you, you seem to be more technical, more hands-on, more you understand more about the product, more about the the people on the ground using your product than the typical marketing person. Do I have that? Do I have that correct? I, I hope so. I I think for me that comes from um, trying everything I possibly can to understand our clients. Uh, and, and, and know what they're going through, know what matters to them. And if that requires getting technical, then, then so be it. So it, in my opinion, it'd be impossible to, to do marketing without being able to speak truthfully to the, to the pain point. So I've, I've gotten the opportunity to walk through boiler rooms and, and see what it's like and shadow engineers. And that, that's, that's kind of baseline, uh, in my opinion for, yeah. for this kind of work. And that's funny. You talked about the mint for sustainability app. I feel like I had that same idea at some point <laughs> too. Uh, I'm, a, I'm like a heavy mint.com user, yeah. right? It just makes sense that there should be some aggregator for pulling all the different ways in which you consume carbon personally. Um, yeah. What, what happened with that? How did it, where did I, it go? I, I got like maybe, I don't know, 150 users okay. and the data showed that they almost all of them logged on they would uh do one of two things either leave and never come back or connect their their utility account so they could see at least their like home utility data in there uh -huh. and then leave and never come back so i i being in startups before that i believed the maxim of, of fail quickly. And, and so I shut it down relatively. Yeah. I, there wasn't any nugget of any thread that I could hold on to that, that yeah. people were gravitating to. So, yeah, I think that I've seen one recently that had a good business model. I think they connect to your credit card and your utility account and they, they basically sell you carbon offsets. So that's, mm -hmm. that's how they make money on it, which is something, <laughs> something for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Enertiv. So can you talk about, for those people that haven't heard of Enertiv, what do you guys do? Where are you guys at? What yeah. types of clients do you serve? Yeah. So we define ourselves as an operational intelligence platform. We, we serve all property types in commercial real estate. The, I know that operational intelligence doesn't uh, mean anything yet, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> To, to understand what we're going for, I think it's important to understand what the status quo is in commercial real estate. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're an owner operator or you're a large investment portfolio, the, the teams on the ground will have half a dozen different software solutions to manage their everyday workflows. And then the guys in the, the market over are also using a half dozen tools and they're different from the first group. So we actually did a, a technology survey with one of our larger clients and across 53 of their assets, they had 50 unique technology vendors for the same five or six workflows that have to happen. So, you know, you aggregate this and, and, and there's just no transparency. And so operational intelligence comes in because in order to have, in order to make intelligent decisions, 
you need transparency into, into what's going on. We think there are two primary parts of that. There's data that's consolidated and there's data that's contextualized. So on the consolidated front, uh, Enerative has built an all-in-one platform for both workflow automation and real-time monitoring. There are four software modules, a, a maintenance app, it's a best-in-class CMMS, uh, energy and ESG tool for utility bill scraping and ESG reporting, a tenant billing tool for the, the sub-metering process and the, the billing process, and a capital planning tool to bring that process out of spreadsheets. And then the power-ups come in where we integrate real-time data, whether that's from a BMS or whether that's sensors that, that we deploy. And we take those workflows and we apply data-driven insights and ultimately greater efficiency, fault detection, improved decision-making on the, on the capital planning side. And as importantly, so that's the consolidated front. The contextual front is we aim to serve each of the stakeholders where they are. So if you're a controls engineer, you log into Enerative and, and all the scatter plots with the KW to outside air temperature are there and you, you, can, you can do your thing. If you're a building engineer, you don't care about any of that. You just want to know what, what do I have to do right now, right? And if you're an asset manager, you don't care about any of that. And you just want to know how are things going generally, right? What do I have to pay attention to? Are there any issues sneaking up on me that I need to get ahead of? So in a nutshell, we are delivering transparency for commercial real estate owners and operators. Totally. And so commercial real estate is primarily landlords are your customers? Landlords, investment portfolios uh, who don't necessarily operate their own buildings, they, they usually have the least transparency when it comes into operations. So yeah, definitely both of those. And we have seen some traction with large occupiers or, or corporate entities as well. But Okay. The, the focus on which stakeholder or which end user is really interesting. I haven't seen a lot of people doing that, that the same data underneath and then contextually providing whatever that user and their role requires. I don't know that I, had, I don't know that I have a question around that. It, it seems like you guys have probably read my writing and that's been resonating because you, you like respond and comment a lot of what I've written about that. Have you, have you, has that re been resonating with your customers? Uh, how long have you guys been doing that? Can you talk a little bit more about that piece? Yeah, sure. So Enerative started as an equipment monitoring company solely. So, okay. um, the, the original insight was many buildings don't have a building management system. Even those that do, it doesn't cover every system or it's so old that you can't integrate with it. So. Mm -hmm. The, the founders developed a branch circuit meter that they could uh, affordably deploy in buildings and get real-time electrical demand data from hundreds of pieces of equipment. So they, they went to their early customers and they said, look, this is data that you've never seen before. This is a novel data set that, that can allow you to make better decisions. And they would go, oh my God, look, I can see my chiller is consuming six kW of power right now. What does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? What, what's the context here? So from there it was, okay, now we have to develop algorithms and analytics to 
translate this kind of raw data into insights and into optimizations. And one of the big, I wouldn't say pivot, but one of the big turning points in the company's history was truthfully, transparency into equipment level energy data is important, but that's just one small piece, one area where owners and operators don't have transparency. They don't know if maintenance has been performed. They don't know if they're going to have to replace any piece of equipment soon. They don't know what their tenants are consuming. They don't know any of this stuff. So there was pre-COVID a move to let's understand what building operators are working with today. And in the cases where we think we can do, we can serve them better than, than their spreadsheets or their legacy apps, let's build that for them. And let's connect these two, let's connect that to our kind of core business. When COVID hit, that accelerated rapidly. Uh, so all of a sudden, the idea of deploying sensors to to track real-time equipment level data was was interesting, but like we, many portfolios realized that they wanted to do things rapidly at scale and software is a lot easier to do that with than, than going building by building with integrations. So when you get into that space, kind of one thing leads to another and you cannot, we've, we've gotten to the point where we understand fully that if, if we want a building engineer to implement the optimizations that Enertiv can identify, we believe wholeheartedly that we need to deliver value to him in his regular day before mm -hmm. we start saying, Hey, there's another thing you need to do on top of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, uh, asset managers are often the ones signing the check and they sign the check and then they get a bunch of tools that they they've never used or will never use. They, because often, especially now, uh, asset managers are being asked to speak to ESG goals, right? They, they have to be well-versed in this stuff. They can, we cannot expect them to suddenly become highly technical and use tools that were designed for engineers. We need to translate that to, to like a zero to 100 trended score. What, you know, what is your maintenance score, right? Something, yeah. something that anybody could understand. So a lot of it happened organically. A lot of it happened just by working and listening to working with commercial real estate owners, operators and listening to what their needs were and, and innovating on their behalf. Yeah. It's really interesting me watching, you know, coming from a very technical role in the industry, you know, about the first 10 years of my career being an engineer, working with FDD, working with analytics, and then kind of providing what my customers needed to know from that, right? So if I'm talking to the controls guy, I might pull up that scatter plot, like you said. Ooh. If I'm talking to the manager, I might just say, shit's pretty messed up, <laughs> right? You know, um, it's it's been interesting watching it, watching the sort of product landscape evolve because I feel like there are still a lot of FDD companies that are sort of stuck in that. Like, we're going to show you all of the information and we're going to expect whoever logs in here to get something out of it. Oh. But I think there's a whole different crop of software developers that are sitting here saying, well, who's logging in, right? And, and how can I like basically take that same analytical insight and insert those into the right workflows for that person? Oh. So I'm 
I'm glad to hear that that's resonating and that that's sort of how you guys are thinking as well. It's, uh, it's wild too. When you like, there's all this abstract technology stuff. And then when you try to map that to the real world, we, we do it, we do a series called a operator spotlight where we'll just, we'll interview a a building operator and learn about what his day to day is like. Mm -hmm. And one quote will always stick with me. I, I was like, how much time does this save you, right? How, how much you have this new technology? How much time does that save you? The way he put it is like, it's not in terms of minutes and hours. It's I walk into a mechanical room and I know that two years ago we replaced the motor on one of these 12 pumps, but nobody knows which one which it was. One? <laughs> so, so what do I do? I, I, I go back. And I dig through my email for some sign of which one. Mm-hmm. While I'm doing that, I get a call because something has happened somewhere in the building. And so I have to go deal with that. Right. So that takes up the rest of my day. I come back to my desk the next day and, oh, I have a better idea than email. I'll look through this spreadsheet that I keep on projects that have happened, right? Capital plan, mm-hmm. capital plans and projects. And I'm, I'm digging through that. I'm almost there and I get another emergency call and this keeps happening. And so it's not minutes and hours. It's, uh, it took me a whole week to get the answer to the question that I, that I had. That means I can't, I'm, I'm just stuck, right. For, for a whole week, not making decisions, not, uh, getting work done. That that's like a perfect example of like, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your FDD program is. If your if your operator is experiencing their, their work like this, the, there's some stat that operators spend 18% of their day looking for information. That's, that's one day out of the week They're they're just looking for stuff. Right. And then you have sustainability teams come and say that, okay, now it's time for an energy treasure hunt. We expect you to analyze all your systems and figure out where we can save energy. It's like, I can't even get to my core responsibilities. How am I supposed to do this effectively? Totally. All right. Let's talk about the, the how then. So I, I love this LinkedIn post you posted and I think it had like seven people like it. And I thought like 700, (laughs) 700 people should have liked it, but the It basically said 2022 is all about tenant experience. 2023 is going to be all about operator experience. And we're kind of talking about that a little bit, but maybe you could just start with, I'm not going to read the whole post, but talk about why you're predicting 2023 to be about that operator experience. Yeah. Well, again, you know, some context is important. Not only are, are owners and asset managers waking up and realizing they have no transparency. They don't know what's going on, but the labor market for building operators is extremely tough. Many of like the majority of them are over 50. Many are retiring sooner than was expected. There's really nobody to replace them. Meanwhile, inflation's rising, interest rates are rising. There's concerns about recession and, uh, there's kind of in tightening budgets. And then there's all this scrutiny around from investors around ESG, from regulators on, on carbon emissions, from tenants are expecting more than ever. So the context is we like as a commercial real estate portfolio, we have to do more with less. 
how do we do that? How do we how do we engage our on-site teams to do better than they've ever done with fewer of them or or with less resources generally? And you said the like you said this earlier a little bit. I just want to kind of go back to it. The, the key to that is sort of becoming. This is my own word my own wording, but sort of becoming the place where their work gets done, their, their mm-hmm. core job, not right. the other stuff that you're adding onto their plate with decarbonization and whatever, but where, where does their core job get done? And it right. sounds like that's what you guys have decided. Hey, we're going to be the core place where you get your work done. And that's going to be actually the best place to engage them on these new initiatives that need to be paid attention. That's to. exactly right. And, and, not only, so, you know, you go into a mechanical room, there's a $500,000 chiller and the, the maintenance log is a piece of loose leaf that's been ripped off and placed on the chiller, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so similar to this, this example I gave earlier about which pump motor had been replaced. The first thing we do is a layer of digitization. So like, let's take pictures of every piece of equipment, digitize that nameplate information. Let's pull in the O&M manuals and warranties and service agreements and everything related to that piece of equipment and make it accessible either by logging into the platform or through like an asset tag, a QR code sticker in the field. So if you're that building operator and you just need to know what the deal is, like, is this under warranty? Scan the asset tag and I have my answer, right? Like that's true value to, to, to a building operator. You've, you've saved them a tremendous amount of headache and time. If that same app also has their preventative maintenance schedule, it has their inspection schedule. If they need to do meter reads for tenant submetering, it's all in there. Um, it, the, the most recent capital plan is in there. All these kind of like workflow things that have to happen, work orders from tenants, even better. And then if that same app can say, hey, by the way, we predict that <clears throat> the elevator motor uh, has experienced enough degradation that it, it should be maintained now uh, to avoid a, a shutdown, even better. Or, you know, change your chiller set point by two degrees, you'll, you'll save $25,000 a year. Like, that, like what a different experience for an operator to, to use a tool every single day to walk the building, to, to perform core responsibilities that same thing has insights being delivered on a regular basis rather than like corporate said, we have to care about energy efficiency. So like, let's do a three day energy treasure hunt and you, you have to fit this into your schedule somehow. Um, or, or how I think a lot of the smart buildings industry wants them to think, which is here's this other application, go log into that other thing. Yeah that doesn't have any of that context that you just talked about, doesn't have any of their core responsibilities, it's extra. Right. And just like you talked about the guy that can't seem to find his, get, get time to dig into his email, are they really gonna have time to dig into that other exactly. application? Right, exactly. yeah. The really cool thing about tying these together is that the, the real-time monitoring doesn't have to stop at FDD now, right? It doesn't have to stop at energy savings, like basic set point and scheduling savings, right? If with real-time monitoring, we can calculate runtime hours. So let's look at that preventative maintenance schedule and not have to base it off uh, a calendar. We can base it off 
how much the equipment actually runs. What a novel concept. Like you, you actually could save a bunch of time because you're over maintaining these systems or our capital plan says to replace this, this piece of equipment this year because the manufacturer said so, right? Like, let's look at the maintenance history. Let's look at the, the, the his, history of faults and, and the, the actual carbon emissions and determine whether this equipment needs to be replaced this year. So like there's one plus one equals like 50 in our, in our minds. Totally. So I imagine one of the main areas of pushback you guys get, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I'll just tell a little story about my own business, right? So I'm looking for some sort of way to sort of project out cash flow. And as any small business kind of is project out cash flow, run different scenarios. And in that I'm looking at my like Excel spreadsheet that I've been using for three years since the beginning of Nexus that has all the cash flow information. Um, and I'm looking at these software providers and they're basically expecting me to kind of in a deep way to learn how their software works. But then not only that, but take the leap and say, now I'm going to run my business exactly how you guys thought about how I should run my business, right? When you develop this product, right? And what I did was I trialed three of them and then I realized these don't apply to me. Like I, I'm going to keep running my business in Excel. Basically, yeah. I just need a, I just need a more detailed Excel spreadsheet to, to do projections. So I'd imagine that like, there's a, there's a pushback a little bit, which is I I'm running it this way. Now I don't have time to run it how, how I am running it. And I, I especially don't have time to then figure out a new way to run my building based on how your guys' software works. Do you guys, do you guys struggle with that? Because I feel like a lot of people, when you start to get into workflows, you start to say, well, the old way that you were doing your workflows was not good. You need to do it on, on our, our system. And I feel like that's a big leap sometimes for people that are already really busy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I think every software as a solution provider in the world probably faces this just inertia is one of the biggest competitors for us. Yeah. It's uh, really easy to tear out a loose sleep page and just throw yeah, it on top of it. For sure. <laughs> so the, the reason that we've been growing at, at the rate we have is because the world is changing in a way that's, that's flipping that equation, right? It's, it's going from, well, it would be nice, but it sounds like we'd have to change some things to like, oh my God, if we don't change, we're doomed, right? Mm. And it, it changes the equation, right? Like if, if you're trying to raise capital and the institutional investors are saying, uh, not only do we need a basic kind of carbon disclosure thing, but we need to see an action plan and actual results, actual performance improvements. And you go, uh, who's on top of it? Like, who's, yeah. who, how are we going to do this? And nobody has a good answer. Suddenly you, you look at those spreadsheets and you look at the email chains that have been good enough. And like, it, it's true. What you're saying is commercial real estate has been wildly successful for a long time running the way it has. And it's who can, who can blame them for continuing to want to do that. But I think the world is, is kind of forcing them to totally.
Let's pause here for one more quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll get back to the show. As we unpacked on one of our most popular episodes ever, episode 44 with the legendary John Petsy, SkySpark is a comprehensive software platform for connecting, storing, analyzing, and visualizing data from devices and equipment systems. SkySpark's automated analytics, KPIs, energy, and greenhouse gas apps turn your data into actionable intelligence, providing improved performance, reduced downtime, and operational savings. Head over to skyfoundry.com for insightful white papers, case studies, and blog posts, as well as a link to sign up for a free demo. I might have stolen that from you. (laughs) No, no, I don't think you did. I don't think I said that. But I, I like this like concept of carbon. So yeah. can you talk can you talk more about how you actually besides like the sheer panic that you just described of like, oh, we can't raise money from institutional investors? Yeah. How how do you see the this concept of carbon being created with with operational with operators? Yeah, for sure. I we we try to tie every activity that we possibly can not only to dollars and cents, but also to carbon. And we hear over and over again from really smart, sophisticated landlords that like at the, at the enterprise scale, they have a pretty good sense of, of carbon and carbon accounting. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, to the site, all of that is out the window and it's, it's a different language. It's never thought about until it's explicitly brought up to them. So. Connecting the dots there uh, and creating a feedback loop, uh, we we think is super duper critical. How do we do that? Um, for example, if you if you have capital plans in spreadsheets, and I, I've seen a 140 building portfolio that has a, one Excel with 140 different tabs for mm-hmm. the for the capital plan for each property. Those decisions are being made managers, engineers, and then approved by asset managers, none of whom have a concept of carbon, right? Right. And then maybe on the big ticket items, sustainability comes in and says, whoa, 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 don't buy another boiler. Like we need to find an uh, electrification option here. But th- there's no way that they can do that for every single item. There's just, there's just too much and too many decisions. Um, so in that example, we believe that bringing this process, this workflow out of spreadsheets and into software, we can break down those silos in the organization. We can, we can make sure that the decisions that are being made are made with the a full picture of the maintenance history with a full picture of the committed carbon after you make this decision and and the the property's cash flows so like that that's that's one example of creating a a, a concept of carbon on site got it got it i bet when you wrote that post you didn't think of us spending like 30 minutes digging into every every <laughs> on it yeah, i just realized that but, but i didn't think it could happen but back to the first line that you talked about tenant experience, I'm wondering then the concept of carbon on site, you're mostly talking about operational folks. How do you then bridge that? That's like the, what I call like the portfolio site gap. We have to bridge that gap. Those two different silos, portfolio folks and site folks. What about the third gap, which is the tenants, right? Or the third silo. How do you then sort of bring them in and get them aligned with what the landlords are trying to do and, and vice versa? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I could, if I could shout anything from the mountaintop, it would probably be this. It's, it's 
tenants, tenant experience has, has been talked about for three years and it's been centered around like yoga and dog walking and ordering coffee. Meanwhile, occupiers, corporate occupiers are paying Entertiv to centralize their various sub-meter bills because they have their own ESG reporting requirements at the end of the year, right? And they just need a central repository to pull that from. And they, they get, they get like tenant submetering is probably the least sexy thing, mm -hmm. well, least sexy workflow of all the workflows, but it's so important. It's like, it's so easy to, to, for it to be an afterthought, like we bill them out and they pay their bill along with the rent. And that's that. Right. But tenants are struggling to achieve something that the landlords ha not only have a direct control over, but that aligns with the same thing that landlords are struggling to do. Right. So tenant submetering needs to be really, really looked at and, and rethought. We, we have some, we have a number of clients who really get it and they've seen the, the benefits of a kind of modern tenant submetering program. What that looks like is bills that are not so opaque, right? They're very, very clear. And they also talk about carbon equivalencies and they also show ranks within the building. Like, you know, you spend five and a half dollars per square foot on electricity when the average tenant in this building spends 225, mm. like you should know that. And then, and then some poor soul at this corporate entity, instead of having to go through emails and pull out PDFs and manually type that into their ESG reporting tool, they can go into the Entertive tenant portal and download all that, all that data in a snap and just, and just send it to their, their reporting tool. Mm -hmm. uh, the other cool thing about having like a, a platform that is not just another tenant submetering point solution is that that same tenant portal, they can submit their maintenance tickets to. So like something again, that the tenants are going to use on a regular basis also becomes this energy and carbon, uh, source of information. So totally. That reminded me of, um, I, I listened to the, the Tim Ferriss podcast a lot and he always asks guests you could put something on a billboard, what would you put it? Yeah. What, yeah. Would, you, what would you put on it? And, uh, I feel like there's something there. I think you gotta, yeah. you gotta shorten your message a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there, there's, there's definitely something there. <laughs> yes. Tenant submetering matters. All right, cool. So we talked a little bit about the tenant experience, operator experience. You, you also have this concept that I saw you guys posted about, which was ESG 2.0 and the ESG 2.0 playbook. So maybe we could start by what, what is, what was ESG 1.0 yeah. and then kind of what, what is the, the next version of that? Yeah. Simply put ESG 1.0 is disc is reporting and disclosure, right? It's, it's just compiling your mostly utility bills and submitting that to energy star and Gresb and, and all the different frameworks along maybe with your kind of social standards and governance policies. That was ESG 1.0, set the, set the benchmark. I think it was a necessary step. Small point on the, uh, on the like tenant billing piece. A lot of 
landlords are still struggling with ESG 1.0 because they get, at the end of the year, they have thousands of utility bills. These, pretty much every provider is doing the same process, right? They're downloading these bills, they're using OCR to, to scrape the data out, and they're, they're digitizing it that way. And there's errors, right? Because we have, because we're a, uh, a basically a bill producer, you know, we have this tenant submetering service and we produce bills on a monthly basis. We have the infrastructure to audit and verify and make sure that these, these bills are accurate. We do it on the utility bill and the tenant bills. So like a lot of landlords have gotten stuck at this ESG 1.0 step. They say like, well, we got this software and, and now we have all this data, but now we got to hire a consultant to clean it up. And the consultant advises us to have the onsite team submit it manually anyway, because that's more likely to be accurate. And so it's like, oh no. No, so, God. So that, that's, that's 1.0 in our minds. 2.0 is, is doing something about it, right? I, I think we've covered a lot of it. I think it starts with the onsite teams. There's an awesome stat recently from Energy Star that they surveyed Energy Star certified buildings and asked them what the biggest factor was in their certification. And 69% said operations and maintenance. Over retrofits, over tenant engagement, over smart building tools, it, operations and maintenance was their, their number one choice. So I think it makes sense to start there. And we've, we've talked about that piece. Mm -hmm. Tenants make up 60, 70, 80% of the total consumption. So obviously engaging that with the tenant submetering matters billboard uh, is part of this. And then something that I think you talk about all the time is, is like the third piece is real-time monitoring and smart uh, capital investments. The one thing that we often stress, a, a lot of landlords tout that they do energy audits. And I think you probably know this better than anyone, but the, the concept of performance drift, like you, you tune up the, you pay a lot of money, you tune up the building and then life happens, right? Like a tenant requests overtime HVAC and it's granted and then never turned back or a fire alarm goes off and it turns everything on 24 seven and yeah. nobody knows how or whatever it is, right? There, unless there's real time monitoring to it, like, Unless there's real-time monitoring, you'll fall off the bike, right? Rather than yeah. uh, constantly adjusting. And then, and then obviously you, you've talked about it, committed carbon, right? If you, if you are not making capital investment decisions with carbon in mind, you're, you're making it almost impossible for your, to, right. to reach net zero because you'll, your infrastructure just won't support it. So those are kind of the three or four pieces in ESG 2.0 in our mind. I think there are, one would argue, and th this is just what we think about a lot. One would argue that there's renewable energy deployments and carbon offset strategies or procurement strategies. But in terms of like operating the building, if you have engaged your operators, engaged your tenants, put in real-time monitoring and have a like solid capital plan that takes carbon account, you're, you're golden and you're in like the 99th percentile of, of commercial real. Yeah. That's one of the things, you know, we're thinking about 
you and I were talking a little bit about this before we hit record, but we're, we're talking about, you know, internally at Nexus, where do we want to go with our sort of decarbonization coverage? And I think one of the places we're going to go with that is like, what does a framework or a roadmap look like that everyone can follow? And the question you have when you start to think about that is where do you put procurement and offsets? Do you put it at the beginning or do you put it at the end? Right. And I think philosophically where I'm at, which is probably no surprise to anyone, uh, is put it at the end. Yeah. Right? Do everything you can do yeah. that decarbonizes your own building right? right? before you start to think about fun with numbers and, and math yeah. problems. But what I've been trying to think about is like, is not Right, you want to be net zero today, right? And that's the fastest yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to think about like, what do I think people should be thinking about yeah. it like versus how are people actually thinking about it? And I have to sometimes like, merge those two ways yeah. in which so we'll, we'll see what we end up uh finalizing as like the framework sometime soon but and yeah one thing i want to bring up too is that i mentioned in the beginning that we do serve all asset types and like if if you're an industrial portfolio for example g1.0 is actually way harder <laughs> mm -hmm. um and we've gotten a ton of inbound demand from industrial portfolios saying the tenants control our utility data. We cannot do this simple bill scraping strategy, but we need to report, we need to disclose our carbon emissions. So for us, the, the solution is we'll go upstream from the tenants and we'll, we'll digitize the, the utility meter and the tenant meters and flow that data directly into energy star and light up your portfolio that way. And like the the playbook does have to be altered depending on the property type. And like, if again, with industrial, these are triple net leased assets. There are, aren't any operators to engage, right? So it cuts straight to tenant engagement. Like there's often, unless it's cold storage, there's not really the critical equipment to monitor, but the landlords are, even though they don't maintain the equipment, they still it's still their capital that's building the infrastructure. So yeah, it just, it, it's, it is important to recognize that even though it would be nice to say, like, here's the playbook for decarbonization of commercial real estate. There is no, uh, the roadmap. It does have to get playbook. segmented. Yeah. By property type. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll look at doing that whenever we create it. <laughs> okay. I've been kind of put, I, I've, I've known this is what we need to do for a long time and I've kind of been pushing it off as I learn more and more about the problem. But yeah, you're right. It probably needs to be segmented out to a bunch of different things. What, what I've realized though, is there's like, there's a couple of different tracks to it, right? There's the data aspect, right? And the data aspect covers the full life cycle, no matter how you do it. And then there's the action aspect and we need to retrofit. We need to actually go into our buildings and do stuff. So I know I'm thinking about those being sort of two sort of parallel, but connected tracks. Yeah. The order of operations matters in terms of how, how the money flows, how the, the organizations flow together and all that. So, mm -hmm. well, well, Hey, this has been a super fun conversation, not only because I've been validated, but because I think you guys are <laughs> onto something. So let's, let's close out with some, some carve outs, any books, TV shows, podcasts, movies, doesn't have to be from, from smart buildings that have uh, made an impact on you lately. Well, uh, besides the Nexus Labs podcast, I'm a huge history nerd. And uh, so I, I, 
If you haven't read 1491 and 1493, those are fantastic books about the world before Europeans discovered the Americas uh, and then what happened immediately afterwards. And then more recent, those are maybe eight or 10 years old. More recently last year or the year before that, a book came out called The Dawn of Everything. Have you heard of this? I, I've heard of it, but I have not read it. Okay. It's fantastic. The premise is uh, that we are taught that increasing size requires increasing hierarchy and complexity. And there are many examples throughout human history, in fact, most of human history until modern times, of surprisingly large groups of people operating in in a non-hierarchical fashion um, and kind of uh, having strategies in their society that uh, maximized everyone's well-being without a, a ruler or without without a, a an organizational structure. So the tie-in to, to smart buildings is uh, when these become giant robots, uh, they'll all be operating on the edge and we won't need the kind of central command structure that's currently in place. They'll be, uh, they'll be independent and uh, fully sentient <laughs> things. Cool. I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like that book sounds right, right up my alley. The, the book is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. David Graeber, he's got some, got some good books. David Graeber, he wrote the one on debt. Yeah. Okay. I'm currently reading and I, I think I'm going to buy that as soon as we get off the, the call here. It sounds really cool. I'm currently reading this book from 1971 written by John McPhee, who was a writer. He wrote a bunch of fiction and nonfiction. He was a professor at Princeton as well. Um, he was actually Tim Ferriss's writing teacher when Tim Ferriss went oh, to wow. Princeton to take this conversation full circle. But he wrote this book called, and my parents gave me this for Christmas, just totally random book selection by my parents, but it's called Encounters with the Archdruid. And oh. it is him going on a backpacking trip with the founder of the Sierra Club, uh, a mining expert, <laughs> an oil exploration expert, and they're backpacking through Glacier National Park. Oh. And they're looking for copper because back then they were thinking about mining the park for copper and like around it wasn't the national peak. park or it was, it was like right by glacier peak. Like, yeah. But, and and oh, I haven't gotten to the point where I, park. yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually don't know what happened. I haven't looked it up yet. I'm kind of just reading it like, <laughs> it's, like it's modern day, Yeah, but it's fascinating because he's like narrating his experience yeah. on this backpacking trip. And obviously the Sierra Club guy is like hyper conservation and the mining guy is like, yeah. well, we need copper in our right. society. Uh, and so he's like going back and forth and they're like arguing, but they're also like sleeping in tents together. Yeah. And it's just fascinating the way that he kind of weaves in these different ideological yeah. philosophies. So definitely recommend that one. I'm going to write that down. Personally, I believe the secret to life is to hold two seemingly yeah. contradictory thoughts at the same time there you go so that that's awesome that have you ever read or heard of seven summits nope mm -mm. this is a good one this is uh 
two businessmen in the 80s, one of which was the president of, I think, Universal Studios, and the other was the owner of uh, Snowbird out in Colorado. I think Snowbird. One of the, one of the, uh, the resorts out there independently had the, the mission of becoming the first person to summit the highest peak on each of the seven continents. Okay. Nobody had ever done that up until this point because, for example, you needed $200,000 just to get to Antarctica at the time and, and, and all that. So it's a, it's a really good book about like people who are not, who had never really backpacked or been involved with mountaineering before going for one of the most insane challenges possible. Okay. And then it's really funny because the this peak in Australia is like 2,400 feet. So they, uh, the last one is like a, a, a big celebration when they, okay. Well, I won't, I won't ruin it. But. All right, Conley. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Our, our podcast editor, Zach is going to love these, this carve out section. It's his favorite part. And he's gonna, he's gonna love these, these book recommendations. So <laughs> thanks for that. And for, for sharing the knowledge. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was, this was really fun. Really appreciate it. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.